Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Two novels that explore the boundaries between truth and fiction. First, a made-up historical document in David Flussfeder's John the Pupil. And then, a made-up childhood memoir in Jeff Jackson's Mira Kapora. David Flussfeder was born in New Jersey but grew up in London. He's the author of numerous novels, including a film by Spencer Ludwig, The Pagan House, The Gift and Like Plastic, which won the Encore Award in 1997. He has taught creative writing at Birkbeck College, Morley College, the Avon Foundation and Pentonville Prison, and currently does so at the University of Kent. His latest novel is described as a medieval road movie, John the Pupil. So, David, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for inviting me in. So, as well as being described as a, as a medieval road movie, the inside cover of this book describes it as a, a cross between Umberto Eco and Quentin Tarantino, which, which it really isn't. Which it really isn't, no. <laughs> so, um, how would you describe what it actually is? I think the author's the last person to ask, to such an extent that when I saw that line in the copy, I didn't insist immediately that it gets struck out. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was told, no, no, it presses the right buttons. <laughs> Unfortunately, the I mean it was reviewed widely and well, but pretty much every, every review, review was referred to it. that line. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, in a day of decreasing review space, mm-hmm. you don't really want text taken up with. Uh, yeah, and I think it sells it short. I think it definitely bears comparison to Umberto Eco. It's nothing like Quentin. I think Quentin Tarantino is the person that should be pleased at that comparison. Oh. I mean, I, yes, I, I don't know. I haven't, and the reason why that line came across is it was an attempt to be a, a glib, attractive one-liner mm-hmm. to summon up a worldview that the reader would be entering that sort of world. Yeah. And you know, I set, I mean, I set out to do lots of different things in this book, and you know, and one of them was to sort of present what seemed like an authentic 13th century mm-hmm. experience, while at the same time overtly denying that such a thing is possible. Yeah. So, to get rid of Tarantino once for all, I think Tarantino's a great filmmaker, but what he is, above all, is is brilliant at pastiche. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted this book, above all, was not to be pastiche, Mm -hmm. you know, for that not to work on that ironic level. But then I guess we're going to get on to the vexed question of whether historical fiction can ever really not be pasties, which is, is sort of what the book's about. So the conceit of it is, is that it's it's a found 
yeah. manuscript. So it's the the chronicle of the journey of of John the Pupil, and it's scraps that he's written of a sort of diary that has been written on little bits of parchment that he can find along the journey, some of which has been desecrated and damaged by one of his companions along the way. And then this has been recovered by a possibly disreputable antiquarian, and then subsequently translated by an academic. So there's like three or four layers We're already three or four layers away from this historical document. And then all through the book there are... Well, not all through the book, but the end of the book there are footnotes by the supposed translator commenting on the the historical document. And if you would, I'd like you to read one particular one of those because it basically gets right to the root of what the book is about. Yeah, these are notes which are sometimes misleading and they do not stand for what I think. You know, so there is this Mm editor-translator... Unnamed, who has you know has done his best, but I don't know if he's that good. You know, so he's a little bit pompous, mm-hmm. and he's got his own axes to grind. So yes, I think you described it very well. So yeah, and in that process of fragments, that they got further fragmented over the years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so this refers to Brother Bernard, who's one of John's companions, who's uh, suffering an attack of rather bad diarrhoea um, by the campfire one night, and our editor writes. It seems obvious to us that Bernard's sickness is due to an infection contracted from the filthy rag he had been gagged with. But their times are not ours, and they are not us. The companions had a different notion of cause and effect, despite Roger Bacon's efforts to unite them. In the gaps between events were angels and demons. This raises a historiographical point, which belongs somewhere, so I shall place it here. There are some who still believe in an unaltering substance called the human condition, as if we could know Bernard or John as if we could think like them, might even somehow become them. But the past is eternally different from us. That is why all historical novels are failures, or at best metaphors, dressing up the present day in anachronistic disguise. To think we can gain a better understanding of ourselves by studying our precursors with curiosity and sympathy is tempting. But you are not I, and I am not John the Pupil, no matter how much I yearn to be. All metaphors are suspect. Now, I'm not sure if we've actually emphasised this yet, but this is... It's not a real found document. This is a historical novel. Are you sure? <laughs> well, are we sure that's what we can talk about? So are you are you not undermining the whole project in that last note? Yes, I perhaps am. I, I mean, we, should, we should say that the... I mean, as well as purporting to be a found document, and yes, it purports to be a found document, I made it up, there are certain etymological constraints. Mm-hmm. So to keep... To, I mean, it's partly for my benefit as the writer, but I hope also for the benefit of the reader. There are no, I try to eradicate any language that is not either an English word that was known to the 13th century, so John's journey took place in 1267, or a version of a Latin word that he would have used. Mm-hmm. And it's written in quite, for me anyway, a heightened language. It's, you know, he, he, the long sentences, it's, it's, very, it's very Latinate. So, on the one hand, I was trying as best as I could to present an authentic-seeming document, while at the same time overtly saying that such a thing is impossible. Yeah. And all historical fictions are at best metaphors and probably lies. And that's sort of for the reader to... You know, I'm, I'm providing the, sort of the entertainment, the information for the reader to, mm-hmm. to do what they want to do with it. You know, it partly comes out of a prejudice of mine, or several prejudices of mine. One is I'm not a huge fan of a lot of historical fiction. Mm-hmm. I think there are many, I think there are exceptions. I mean, Hilary Mantel, I think, you know, 
those Tudor books are great. But there are lots of historical novels in which you get people speaking in slightly flowery language, Mm -hmm. wearing funny hats, and there's the representation of the past. And I think there's a serious philosophical point that, you know, as the editor says, we are not they, Mm. I am not him. And I think times change, people change. So, for example, John and his companions would have walked, you know, 30, 35 miles a day. Mm -hmm. We can't do that, you know, know, in our mountain boots, you know, and they're wearing sandals Mm -hmm. at their feet. And just, you know, a very mundane example like that, that... you know, people change, mm-hmm. times change. There are sort of abrupt differences and distances. And, of course, it's a a historical novel, and I'm going to keep calling yes. it that, um, just as a short time, because it's easier, that's about a time before the form of the novel existed. So it's in the format of a, a, a chronicle and a sort of hagiography, and there's, there's descriptions of all of the saints as mm-hmm. well, the various saints. It's in a diary form, but done on the sort of each day is named after a saint, and so he gives little stories of the lives of the saints as the chronicle goes along. So is that a thing? Was that chronicle? Was that the sort of the current literary form at the time? Yes, chronicles did exist, and journeys did exist. Mm-hmm. This is shortly before Marco Polo. There were some possibly true, possibly fictitious accounts of chronicles, usually Mm-hmm. usually to the east. Where there would all be fantastic animals yes. around and seen and, and weird monsters and weird yes. peoples and things. Yes, because the, one of the myths of the time was that when Alexander the Great had conquered the east, he'd built a wall, and on the other side of the wall were the demons of Gog and Magog. And in the eschatology of the time, when Gog and Magog broke down the gates, mm-hmm. that was one of the signs of apocalypse. And in this time, they thought Gog and Magog had broken down the gates, mm-hmm. that the Tartars were coming, from, they knew the Tartars were coming from the east, and they thought those might be the forces. And one of the things that did make me realise that doesn't change that much is just how often in history people have thought they were living in the end times. Mm-hmm. Christianity is a religion of the end times. Yeah, that's basically what it is, what, yeah. what it's about. If, and especially the you know the more esoteric Christian sects, if they didn't have the, that idea of the apocalypse all the time, yeah. I don't know what, what's the point. And it, you know, it's like there was. It seems there might have been a brief you know, in sort of Western history. There might have been a brief time in the nineteenth century where mm-hmm. we where people didn't think the world was about to end. That people could innocently believe in progress <laughs> and development. Mm-hmm. And I think, poss- you know, certainly in the West, that almost every other era. And indeed, we have that now. Yeah. I mean, whether it was the Cold War or yeah. now, whether it's global warming, there is always a... And myth is obviously not the right word when we're talking about global warming, but there is, there's always like a sort of grand overarching narrative of the end uh, of the of world. Of imminent cataclysm, mm-hmm. or yeah, maybe not imminent, impending cataclysm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and in this world... I mean, we should say he's delivering a book. Yeah, OK, so tell us... Yeah, I mean, let's, let's talk about what the actual... what the story is. The story is... John is the pupil of Roger Bacon, mm-hmm. who was a Franciscan friar, as often called the first scientist, mm-hmm. because even though everything would have been a branch of... I was going to say theology, but it wasn't theology, because that implies as a sort of separation of mm-hmm. theology and natural science, because everything was towards the greater glory of God, I think, in, in that period. But Roger Bacon believed in testing things, he believed in looking at the world, apprehending it through his senses and seeing what was there and calculating. So, for example, a lot of this is uncertain, but he probably rediscovered Mm gunpowder. He possibly could have invented... He certainly worked with lenses and optics. 
he could have invented spectacles or reinvented or, you know, or rediscovered them. Um, he calculated that the calendar was wrong. You know, so 300 years later, the Gregorian calendar was introduced for the same to deal with what he had identified. So he has written, he has written a book, The Opus Magus, mm-hmm. which has been commissioned by the Pope in secrecy. And John is the vessel of Roger Bacon's learning and is the only... And I think Roger, you know, Roger Bacon, who you know, very much a, re- a real person... And from what is known about him, he in obituary, like in obituaries nowadays, when people say he had a gift for friendship, you know, mm. Roger Bacon did not have a gift for friendship. And John seems to have been the only person he felt any mm-hmm. real human warmth to. And he entrusted him with the delivery of the Opus Magus, his mm-hmm. great work. You say poem. warmth. Yes. I mean, the, the sort of scenes of him quite literally beating knowledge into John. <laughs> it's a funny way of showing his warmth. Well, I think I th- you know I think possibly educational techniques have changed in, in the intervening times. But yeah, he did say you know he said he trusted John. Mm-hmm. You know he wouldn't have trusted certainly many, possibly any mm-hmm. other people. So John and two chosen companions are delivering this book to the Pope, and the Pope is in Viterbo because there was sort of civil war going on. I'm John Lloyd, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Why can't Roger Bacon go himself? Well, I've come a bit of a cropper with some historians. One of the things that's attractive about this period, when I came to write this book, which sort of fell into my lap a bit, I was writing, I was struggling with a novel, and I'd been struggling on and off with a novel for about three or four years. And I'd thought about junking it, and then I've you know, been working it for so long, good money after bad, and diminishing, you know. And I stopped writing it and wrote a film by Spencer Ludwig, and then went back to this novel, which had something about explosives mm-hmm. in it. And in that way that I'm sure is familiar to a lot of people, that I decided to read up about explosives mm-hmm. in a way that I could justify as being work. You know, but it was just a way of not doing what I was meant to be doing, which was writing this book I'd lost interest in. So I was in the British Library reading about Roger Bacon and reading about the rediscovery of gunpowder. Mm-hmm. And there was this footnote in this biography, 50s biography of of Roger Bacon, which said something like, in 1267, Bacon's pupil John delivered a copy of the Opus Majus to the Pope. And I thought, yeah, that's not a footnote, that's a novel. I shall write that novel. And from a position of knowing nothing about the 13th century, really, really nothing about Mm -hmm. this period at all. But it's relatively easy to research it because you know, there, it, there's a finite amount of information. You know, if you're writing a, a novel about the Second World War, there'll be so many... Yeah, there's a know, lifetime of reading. Yeah, several lifetimes, and there'll always be revisionist and re-revisionist. Mm-hmm. You know. So, I mean, I have John setting off from uh, a friary just outside Oxford, and there was a Franciscan friary mm-hmm. just outside Oxford, and I wanted him setting out from England just because in a journey, I think... For it to feel like a journey, you need to cross a body of water. Most people think that Bacon was in Paris at this time, but it's not certain. There is no evidence. So some historians, you know, and I, I wanted, I wanted to get the historians' mm-hmm. perspectives. I sent a draft to a couple of experts mm. in the period, and they said, "Oh, you know, he's, he was probably in Paris." And it's like, "Oh, probably." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that means I, you know, I can do it this way. Um, it's a long way round, and the point I was going to make at the beginning of this was... Why can't Roger Bacon go himself? Because he probably was under an interdiction from the Franciscan order. 
probably. So some of these historians say he wasn't. Yeah. This is a Victorian invention. And that, you know, in that sort of way, historians like to say, you know, every generation invents its own Roger Bacon. Mm -hmm. you know. But probably he was being kept in the friary because he was being... Some of what he was up to was seen as suspicious. But he had influential friends, mm -hmm. so he was allowed correspondence. So the new pope, Clement IV, was someone he had known when he was still a cardinal. Mm -hmm. But the book, I think, was done in secrecy. And then John set out with his two companions to deliver it, unknown to the principles of the order. There'll be some people who'll say, no, no, it's not true, he wasn't under an interdiction. But yes, but certainly for purposes of a novel, it's much better that you get the 17-year-old kid. Yeah and two unready companions rather than... It's interesting that we're discussing this at length and historians will debate it because, you know, we've just been saying that the issue with historical novels, why does any of this matter? If the very idea that a historical novel itself is really, an, you know, it's an impossible thing, yeah. why do you bother making sure that there's no words in the book that, you know, why isn't John going, hey, Bernard, this is cool or, or yeah. something? Do you know what I mean? Why do you not want any anachronisms in it? Why do we care that there's historical verisimilitude? Yeah, yeah that's a really good question. <laughs> Um, one, I don't have... I've got... A but why did you care, is, what, is really what I mean. Uh, um, maybe I wanted to have my cake and eat it. I wanted... Once I set myself the task of... Once I decided how this book was going to be told, that it mm -hmm. was going to be told in a fragmented chronicle, I just wanted to see how... You know, I wanted to, tr to get it. I just mm -hmm. wanted to do it. And even though I have this intellectual belief that it's impossible, but there's also, you know, it's quite grand to attempt impossible things, <laughs> you know. And the thing about having my cake and eating it, I quite enjoyed the idea of attempting the impossible, doing it to the utmost of my powers and abilities to do it, and then to overtly declare that it was impossible mm -hmm. to do. And to me, that's funny. Mm -hmm. you know? And I enjoyed that sort of collision of levels. So attempting to produce a seemingly authentic chronicle and then have a sort of slightly pompous editor-translator mm -hmm. with his interjections and then the collision between the two different sorts of language and I hope you know some of the pleasures of novel writing that you know characters who are good companions as well I guess we've sort of already mentioned that you know this idea that it's it's really impossible for us to to know the minds of to get into the minds of somebody from so long ago apart from the things that we've already talked about the language attempting to give it sort of historical veracity what other ways can you do that how does john what's his worldview how does he think you know how can how can you mm. get inside those things well to start answering that my sort of method for approaching that was to read widely but up to 1300. So I didn't allow myself to read anything more modern than Dante. And I read some of the Divine Comedy. I mean, in, in English translation, I'm not um, polyglot. So I, I made myself as familiar as I could with Old and New Testament. Um, as you said, that each day is headed by a saint's name to whom that day is dedicated, and then with a little story about the saint... And the origins for that is a book called The Golden Legend, mm -hmm. which was in currency during his time, which was, you know, I suppose, equivalent to folk tales, but it would also be illustrations for preachers mm -hmm. to use in sermons. I had the Vulgate Bible. So part of the thing was to eradicate the rhythms of the King James Bible, which we've sort of, I think, as I think most English speakers have inherited. It's very familiar. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it's heightened, but it's a sort of, they're proverbial and it's very familiar yeah. language. And it's complete, you know, 
be completely anachronistic for him. So the Vulgate, which was the Latin Bible that he would have used, which is much plainer than the, the King James Bible. And also, for someone like him or in that period, there was no such thing as really as authorship. So everything was precedent. Everything you'd have sermons which would draw upon the Bible, which would draw upon the golden legends. He would never see himself as an original thinker, that, mm. that that concept wouldn't exist. So partly, I think that's why I came across that form as being the best way to present it, because that's sort of how his worldview would be built. It would be, here's something, here's a story of King David, here's a story, um, a folk tale about uh, a frog, here's something from... St. Christopher, with, as we said before, the idea that they were living in the end times anyway and mm-hmm. it was all going to be, you know, the final cataclysm was, was imminent. And also taking that, you know, that idea of the, there wasn't this idea of, of authorship. And of course, this is, I mean, he's writing what he would not have this concept, but they're sort of, you know, first person narrative. Yes. It's not a third person historical novel that you're explicitly writing, but a lot of historical novels, part of the you know, the joy of them is their incredibly rich description of what life was like in those days and what places were like and, and that can you know, everything from the best stuff to, you know, Dan Brown or whatever yeah. is like the long, vivid descriptions of buildings and places. And this is minimalist. Well, I think there's there gets to be more description as it goes on. Yeah, like and we'll get to the places they go to in the later parts of the book in, in the next part. Yeah, mm. that's absolutely and, true. But certainly with the first part of the book, so for the character of John, it would have been someone who... You know, the world was base matter. His journey would have been an allegorical and moral journey. Mm. He would have been thinking about Jesus Christ rather than the tavern keeper. Mm. So, I mean, part of the story is of him becoming more sort of sensually aware, paying more attention to things and people and nature. But certainly in the first part, he would have been part of his Christian teaching. I mean, although the Franciscans were a little bit more happy-go-lucky than some of the others, they would, you know, their attention was still looking up, away from the earth, Mm -hmm. away from the world. So that was, that was very deliberate. And so there was some, I had, particularly in the early part, descriptions that I later took out when I was editing. So there was one, I came across this custom in northern France where they would butcher a pig on some feast day, I can't remember which one, and the butchers would be blind people. And they'd get these blind people, stick a sharp knife, get a sharp knife, and then have a sort of a, an enclosed arena in the, in the village square and then release the pig. God, that's awful. Well, or if you're 13th century, hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So at the end, the pig, yes, would get slaughtered, mm-hmm. but there'd be a lot of collateral damage along the way. Mm-hmm. And it was quite, sort of, you know, I quite enjoyed writing that scene, but it was just sort of there for its sort of its sake of, yeah. you know, look at this funny world, mm. the, the, this funny 13th century world, how extreme and different. And it seemed to just bear the mark of, look, the writer's done his work and done his research and mm. here's something you wouldn't know about. So I was actually taking out... Yeah, you know who to put that in. Quentin Tarantino would yes.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. This week I'm talking to David Flussfeder and we're talking about his book, John the Pupil. And John, we've talked about Roger Bacon in the first part and he is obviously a famous, a real historical figure. Sometimes there are other real figures that crop up in the book and, and sometimes not. And so I wanted to talk about which are really the characters. So we have the three companions, John, who you've already sort of hinted at, might have been a historical figure, although we don't know anything about him. And in fact, they do visit a character in Paris that might well be a description of the actual John. Um, there's uh, Brother Andrew and Brother Bernard. There's a lovely one of the footnotes that just says, I don't need to talk about brother bernard because everybody everybody knows about him which i thought was interesting because that then made me think that's what i was then on wikipedia looking up <laughs> some bernard that the dog's named after trying to you know trying to figure out if this was the same person so is that character bernard actually a a real person or was that just an a, a amusing footnote joke um, I can't answer that question. Uh, <laughs> you're not the first to ask, and I hope you're not the last. There are, yes, John, there certainly was a pupil, mm-hmm. you know, Roger Bacon's pupil, John. It's unclear, and in that same end note, I do suggest some possibilities for John of, you know, there was you know, a philosopher, there was a mathematician who he might have been. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Guido Cavalcanti, yeah. who is a historical figure, a friend of Dante's. Uh, who we meet as a sort of impetuous 14, 15-year-old. There are, yes, if you are asking me to identify which I made up and which I've <laughs> taken from the historical record, most of them I made up. Mm-hmm. You've just mentioned I wanted to come on to the, the, the Cavalcantes, who are historical figures, and there's a point in the book where they you know, they basically delay the journey in this amazing villa full of, full of luxury. And a little bit earlier, there's a dalliance in, in a garden of a, of a father, Gabriel, which you sort of hinted at in the first part, are, are the points where John is being sort of tempted, but that's when the more lavish descriptions of the places and the beauty of the garden come out. Are those things traps? Well, yes. I mean, they're, they're traps or temptations the way he would see it, yeah. because they're enticing him away from his mission. And you know, he says to Father Gabriel, I cannot, a pupil cannot have two teachers, two masters. But it's also, I think it's when he crosses the Alps... Or, or no, it's probably, you're right, it's probably Father Gabriel, which is before the Alps, of his own senses are getting larger. He is paying more attention to the physical reality. And his companion, Andrew, is very alert to that mm-hmm. kind of thing, much more alert than Bernard or John. And it says partly about the friendship between those three companions mm-hmm. and how they influence and change each other. So he would see this... He would have seen this originally as a as a failure, you know, a lowering of his gaze from the heavens mm-hmm. to the you know the full matter of earth. And I didn't want to, you know, I hope readers, you know, it informs their reading of the book. But I didn't want to you know, labour the point mm-hmm. too much. I didn't want to make it overt. I wanted to be part of the experience that as it goes on, he is seeing more and describing more mm-hmm. and and feeling more. And yes, and with when well, the interesting thing is in the castle of Calvacanti to Calvacanti. Possibly, I was trying to imagine atheism mm. in that period. And Cavalcanti is in Dante's Inferno. So the father of his friend Guido is in Dante's Inferno mm-hmm. in the circle of heretics. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's an astonishing idea, achievement, for someone in the mid-13th century mm-hmm. in Italy to possibly doubt the existence of God. Mm. It was just, you know, it was sort of, it was unthinkable. I mean, as it turns out, it's all 
you know, it's a very lavish, luxurious world which is founded on usury, which has you know, sort of morally complex mm-hmm. and upsets John greatly. But also they're in the middle of a, not just the middle of Italy in the 30th century, but in the middle of a vigorous religious war yes. as well. The Guelphs were the party of the Pope mm-hmm. and the Ghibellines were the party of the Holy Roman Empire, which was German. So at that time, the current, the Guelphs had been in retreat, which is why the Pope is in Viterbo, because the Holy Roman Empire had taken Rome. Mm-hmm. But... Less than a generation later, the Pope would be back in Rome, and then a generation later, there would be two Popes, one in Avignon and one in Rome. So Italy is, yeah, in the middle, sort of the latter stages of the middle of the Civil War, which is is more political than religious. It's Mm. to do with, yes, the Pope versus the Holy Roman Emperor. And there's one other character that I I thought is a very sort of incidental character, really, although he's another temptation. He's the, the preacher that John describes as the crow that right. um, that Bernard falls under the spell yes. of, who's a obviously some sort of heretic yeah. priest, but a sort of heretic priest. And that was the, the one other I wanted to talk about, whether that was... Because obviously this is, a, again, a time of, of Europe where heretics were, you know, were roaming the land and people were being strung up constantly for heresy. Was that based on a on an actual sect? Or? It was, well, one of the very useful... You were asking earlier what, what I was reading mm. that you know, fed into the research of this. And there's a ninth collection that was put together in the 1920s of medieval uh, lyric, poetry... And this was the first era where there were university-educated people. Mm. So, you know, the universities had started sort of, you know, 50, 80 years earlier, probably less, probably started 40 years earlier. And university graduates would be destined for, you know, to be clerics Mm. or lawyers. But there were these clerics, clerically trained, who had had a grounding in what we would call theology, and, and their models would have been Roman poetry, mm. classical Roman poetry. But they were, you know, there was a sort of vagabond. There were, you know, and it was e- it was easier than we think to travel. You, mm. know, you could move across Europe. So the crow, it, yes, is invented by me, but his beliefs were based on someone who actually came hundred years earlier, a German called Gottschalk, who was like a sort of. Um, someone who believed in predestinarianism, mm. if that's the right word, which was you know, an ultimate heresy. So it was like ultra-Protestantism, mm. hundreds and hundreds of years before Protestantism started, who believed that it was decided before you were born whether you were going to go to heaven or hell. So God's grace wasn't available to you. Mm-hmm. And Gottschalk himself was tortured by a very benevolent abbot. who tortured him to death to try to save his soul. And this was, it wasn't an act of cruelty or viciousness. Mm. It was, I love you. If I hurt you enough, maybe you'll recant, and maybe God's grace will be allowed to you, but he didn't recant. But was a great, but was a really good poet. Gottschalk's mm-hmm. poetry was really good. So The Crow is sort of based mm-hmm. on, on his teaching. I wanted to spend some time talking about the research, and we've, we've really done that all the way through the show, but one thing, you actually undertook the journey, didn't you? You followed the pilgrim yes. route. Yes. You didn't walk it, of course. I but... walked some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Um, John follows the Via Francigena, which was the traditional merchant and pilgrim route from Canterbury to Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it's one road, it's, it's one notional road, but you could, there are several different paths along mm-hmm. the way, so there are like two or three different passes across the Alps, mm. they were all the Via Francigena. And I'd, I'd done 
all the reading. I'd done all the sort of library work that I thought I needed to do. And I'd started writing it. And, yeah, and I just felt I have to cover the ground. And I wasn't entirely sure why, but I just, you know, there was some sort of imperative. So some of it was walking. So I walked... So I started, yeah, I thought I've got to start it walking. Mm-hmm. I didn't have enough time to, to do it all on foot. So I walked from Canterbury to Dover to start it off, which should be about, I think, 21 miles. But if you've got as bad a sense of direction as I do, it turns out to be sort of about 26 miles. <laughs> and I committed every sort of walker howler. <laughs> so I was wearing boots I'd never w- worn before. And, you know, by the time I got to Dover, my feet were blistered and bleeding. Mm-hmm. And there was actually no point until I actually saw the the ferry that I thought I was really going to do it. I wasn't going to cheat, but you know. And then yeah, so so I, I walked. I took trains. After about a week and a bit, I was halfway through France, mm-hmm. and I thought I have to speed up a bit because yeah, you know, I just didn't have enough time. So I ended up. There's one day when I took four different trains. Ended up in Turin. Spent the night in Turin, hired a car, and then drove back. So I didn't get to walk through the Alps, which I'd really mm. wanted to do, but drove back to the Alps um, in, in Piedmont. And so I would then drive, walk in a big circle, and then drive again the next day. And then eventually got to Viterbo, and you know, the Papal Palace in Viterbo is still there. It's a bit bigger than it was in his day, but it's still there. And Viterbo is a you know, beautiful city, has its you know, medieval heart really unspoiled Mm -hmm. and in my slightly haphazard way I just you know knocked on the door of the papal palace I was sort of John by proxy and it's just like yeah well here I am so yeah I've got almost no Italian Mm -hmm. and managed to communicate to someone that I wanted to see the papal palace they managed to communicate to me that the papal palace was closed Mm -hmm. and that I could join a tour group but it wouldn't be in the it wouldn't go into the original 13th century room and you know, you know, short of bursting into tears, I couldn't really think of what to do. But eventually, was told right, go to the museum in the museum. So you know, went to the museum, which is three doors away. I had a similar kind of conversation, and they're saying, "Well, it's you've got to see the bishop's secretary." And so, you know, where do I go to the bishop's secretary? So, you know, and that was actually the middle building between the museum and the papal palace. There were two bells on the front door, and I. Rang one, no answer. Rang the other, no answer. Waited, pushed open the door, and the door was open, then walked up. And there was a young man in clerical robes in this room with an overflowing ashtray and lots of ecclesiastical papers. And he, once he got over his alarm that mm-hmm. a stranger was in the room with you know, a rucksack and a weird gleam in his eye, his English was quite good if it was written down. So mm-hmm. I wrote down who I was, why I was there, what I wanted to do. And then the next moment, he was taking me through the Papal Palace. And yeah, and I don't think I ever communicated how delighted I was mm-hmm. and how happy I was. And I took photographs and photographs, which are all like corners of where the wall meets ceiling, because I was just sort of overcome with yeah, the obstacle and then the consummation and then... Uh, yeah, so on my wall when I was writing it, so just these peculiar photographs of the papal palace. Just one final question then to finish us off. The point of historical fiction is often described as, and indeed you have the yeah the translator in that in that 
quote I got you to read out in the first part describe it thus that you know we use historical fiction to to comment on our own times to yeah. comment on contemporary times so what if anything does this book say about today I mean I would hope one of the things would be how different things are and people are rather rather than how similar mm-hmm. I don't I mean, was there a moral did you come away from it thinking no, that's I, taught me a lesson about no, me now in history? No, I don't think so. Another of my objections to historical fiction is this idea that a line is being drawn from the past to now, mm. as if the whole point of then was just to be a staging post yeah. for us to be here where we are now. And connected to that, I think, is a sort of form of self-congratulation, as if, you know, so you can see a... Something about I don't know slavery in the mm. in the nineteenth century in America, and we, and part of that is for us to congratulate ourselves on being so much better than that. Mm-hmm. Or I'm just you know against the grain. Um, I really didn't like the new Mike Lee Mr. Turner film, and there was a bit of that in there as well. I mean, I, it wasn't why I took against it; just seemed a bit interminable. But there was the bit where late Turner is is being laughed at because it doesn't look like mm-hmm. what painting's meant to look like, it doesn't look like what reality is meant to look like. And the whole point of that is just seems to be just to for us to be pleased that mm. our received opinions are better than their received mm-hmm. opinions. You know, because we haven't sort of apprehended Turner in reality. It's just we've just know that we're meant to think that late Turner is yeah. pretty good. You know, oh, we think it's good because you know it's on a tea towel. Yeah, it's a it's a received opinion mm-hmm. that a minority of us have fully investigated for ourselves, mm-hmm. to, and that's you know one of the things I hate about historical fiction that it's that. Yes, that congratulatory thing. But also that that idea that I think again we touched in the first part that these people they they were just like us. Yeah. You know, really they were just like us. And they weren't. Like the gulf between how we think and behave and our moral worldview and everything. It's just I saw another a, a description in the book and, and I think this is absolutely right, that historical fiction at that length should be considered science fiction really because yeah. it is about an alien world it's, yeah. it's talking about a world that we just cannot yes. comprehend yes and that's one of the attractions i think for the writer and probably for the reader as well is that even if it's you know impossible to get at because mm. it is so different because the other the other impulse for writing the book including you know, apart from that reading that footnote in the library was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and we were just sort of wondering pictures of angels and demons. You know, when you you got sort of pictures of angels and demons, when people looked out their window, were they seeing angels and demons? You know, was it figurative? Was it purely allegorical? And it was it was a way of just thinking that through and trying to make sense of it. That you know of, of just how reality would have been constituted to mm-hmm. try to try to begin to grasp how reality would have been constituted. So, all right, yes, here's a possible glib moral that by looking at previous times, maybe an effect of that is to question your own, so that the received opinions we have, we don't have to hold. We can think about them, the things that we think. So that the way that John would have thought that anything he would do, including giving the book to the Pope, would be something that would bring on the end times. Mm-hmm. And that's, ha, 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 you know, what a silly... What a, you know, maybe some of the things that we think without question are as odd mm-hmm. as that. So, yes, if there is a moral, I suppose it would be, it would be that sort of questioning thing. 
Well, there you go. We've just made one up. Yeah. <laughs> and if you ask me tomorrow, it'll be a different one. So I've been talking to David Flussfeder, and we've been talking about his book, John the Pupil, which is out now from Fourth Estate. So, David, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to oh, about it's it. it's been a huge pleasure. Thank you. I'm Natalie Haynes, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Jeff Jackson holds an MFA from NYU and is the recipient of fellowships from the McDowell Colony and Virginia Centre for the Creative Arts. Five of his plays have been produced by the Obie Award-winning Collapsible Giraffe Company. His debut novel is Mira Corpora, which we're going to be talking about today. So, Jeff, thank you very much for joining me on Little Atoms. My pleasure. That little introduction barely scratches the surface, really, of all of your works and various fields of interest. Before we get into the novel, can we talk a little bit about the theatre years, really? Because I think there's certain sort of preoccupations in those years that bleed into this novel, really. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, no, that that is true. The... One thing I will say is the theater is work that's been more public for a long time, and I've been working on fiction sort of alongside doing the theater work, um, but it took a lot longer to surface and a lot longer to get as good as the theater work had been, that it was actually worth sharing. But the theater work I do is the plays that are somewhere between sort of traditional theater and performance art, and there's a lot of cutting up of other texts in there. There'll be narrative stories at times, but then, for instance, the show might sort of break into a dance number or break into uh, something that is not uh, linear as part of the story. The most recent play that I did, a theater piece I did, was this May, and it was an adaptation of the ancient Chinese novel uh, Dream of the Red Chamber, which is one of the first uh, modern novels in China, sort of like their Don Quixote and a really important cultural touchstone. And it's this long, epic 2,400-page book, and we did a 12-hour version of the play for a sleeping audience. Literally, we had 45 beds, and people were welcome to come and go as they please, but we uh, invited people to lay down and take a nap while the show was happening around them. Most people worry about the audience falling asleep during their plays, but you've sort of preempted that there a bit. Yeah, yeah we've, uh, you know, it, it's perfect for people who are constantly going to the theater tired and just don't know if they can stay awake. We, we've taken that away from, uh, that problem away from them. There's something beautiful, I think, about not always asking for the audience's attention and sort of letting the play sort of drift in and out of someone's consciousness and letting them fill in some gaps that might be in the show and sort of dream even, uh, you know, connect some things that they wouldn't normally connect on a more subconscious level. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And we were amazed that we found that people were really willing to give over to this experience. We did it actually in Times Square. We did it in the basement of the Brill Building on 49th Street and Broadway in New York. And so we had a mix of people that were coming just sort of for the show and excited to see something different. And then it's sort of random people, random tourists off of Times Square who would come in and wonder what the hell this was. And then sort of uh, a number of them, we were amazed, uh, really gave over to it and were really sort of interested in trying something different and found that they uh, found that they enjoyed it. In the other plays, you've looked at childhood before, which is obviously a theme that we're going to be talking about in this novel. But the one I most specifically wanted to talk about was the, the one about music, where, if I understand it correctly, also saw the dissolution of the theatre company. Oh, yes, yes. So that was very roughly based on Don DeLillo's Great Jones Street, his great rock and roll novel about uh, the singer Bucky Wonderlick who leaves this big tour he's on and goes and holds up in this uh, cold water flat in New York on Great Jones Street and basically just tries to remove himself from the star apparatus and remove himself from being creative and music. And so we, that was sort of a jumping off point, and we used a lot of other material as well, and I wrote a lot of original material around that. And the play at various times was called P.P. Mau Mau, which is uh, something from Great Jones Street, one of the songs that Bucky performs. And it was also called uh, The Last Party. And it was a lot of the shows that we've done have sort of reflected what's going on with the company at the time. And it sort of reflected the sort of dynamics between the different individuals. And unfortunately, doing a show about trying to leave your art form and breaking up the band did, in fact, lead to breaking up with the collapsible giraffe after many years um, in a rather uh, spectacular fashion, alas. And yeah, I've gone on to work with the director, um, one of the members of the club, so Giraffe Jim Finley and I went on to make a play about plant science and went on to make the play about, based on the dream of the Red Chamber for the sleeping audience. But yeah, the rock and roll show was definitely an endpoint for the company as a whole. And I wanted to bring that one up because this novel has a um, rock star or an ex-rock star, Kin Mersey, who perhaps for different reasons has sort of exited the world of rock. But that seems to be a, I said, a theme that resonates throughout your work. Yeah, it was something that was it was something that's always interested me. It was also because the way the play sort of fell apart, 
a lot of the material that I had written for the play, some of it didn't end up getting used. The play only, it was supposed to have a month-long run. It only had two performances for sort of invited guests. And there's a lot of material that I've been dealing with and thinking about, and it sort of found its way, uh, it found its way into the novel. And in some ways, the, what I had done for the theater company was almost sort of a rough draft of my thinking of that. And I was able to sort of deepen it, follow it uh, in a way that was even more interesting for me in the novel, with creating this character of Kin Mersey, this sort of reclusive rock star who's created a couple of albums and uh, they sort of had a cult status and he's he's disappeared and no one's exactly sure where he is and the narrator receives a tape of his music and becomes obsessed with it and finds the people who left the tape for him and they all um, are sort of uh, fanatical about this music and fanatical about wanting to pay tribute to this music in different ways and also fanatical about trying to find this rock star, Ken Mersey, and find out why he's absented himself from the scene and has he been working on new material in the meantime you know what has he been up to i want you to describe what mera corpora is what it's about because it's in some ways quite difficult to pin down i mean indeed right from the title my copy of the book the uk edition is called jeff jackson's mera corpora a novel, which seems there's numerous layers to that title, which we'll obviously sort of unpick as we talk about what the book's about. But um, how would you describe it? Well, the the idea of putting my name above the title actually came from the American publisher, Two Dollar Radio, and the Friday Project in the UK decided that they liked the design and liked the liked that and copied it. So I can't entirely take credit for that. I don't know that I would have been bold enough to put my name, call it Jeff Jackson's uh, Miracle Pora. But is it your name, Jeff? That was sort of my point. Well, yeah, I mean, that is definitely one of the layers. I mean, it was very important for me that it be called a novel on the cover. And that was something that I stressed when we were initially, when we were initially working on the book. So, I mean, in terms of what it's about, one of the things it's about is about sort of a search for home. It starts with this runaway leaving his mother, running away into the woods and finding this sort of colony of other runaway kids, of these sort of feral children who live in the woods and living there for a while and then going off and finding these teenage oracles and trying to get his fortune told to find out, you know, what might be next for him. And then living in the city and uh, living sort of this homeless existence and getting this tape that we talked about that, you know, is this music of Ken Mersey and he finds these other kids who are also obsessed with it and they try and find Ken. So one of the, yeah, so one of the things it's about is sort of this, the narrator's sort of quest for a home. Another thing it's about is also about how you tell your own story. There are these sort of metafictional sections throughout the book called I Begin, I Continue, I End that are sort of about the process of writing and what that means and sort of some of the images that happen in these sections about writing, these meta sections start to bleed into the novel itself and it starts to blur the line. For me, it was always interesting, this idea that this is sort of commonplace that telling your story, if you could just tell your story, your actual story of your life, how cathartic it would be for you. And I think for some people that's true, but I think there's also a real danger in telling your story. This idea that it can be cathartic, I think it can actually be it's a very dangerous process to start telling your story and you start to open yourself up to all these um, emotions and images that you've repressed and um, it can actually be a shattering experience and not a healing experience. So I wanted to try and represent that in the book too. The sense of telling your story and how that's not, um, how that's a very fraught thing to do. Why that title? What does the title mean? 
So the title is a Latin phrase. It's an idiomatic Latin phrase. It means strange and unusual bodies. But I don't expect anyone to know that. I picked it partly for the sounds. Mira uh, in Spanish means to look at, and mira sort of sounds like uh, mirror. And corpora, you know, meaning corporeal and body, I figured people could get to body from that. So I figured that it had a little, you know, a sense of sort of either look at the body or mirror body. Or I liked the sound of the words, and I found as I was trying to pick out titles for this book, that when I picked more sort of literal titles, the book is in seven sections. And when there was a more literal title, people tended to attach it to one of the sections and assume that that section was the real key to the book. And that's what they needed to pay attention to. And I really wanted the book to be read as a whole and not to not for the reader to feel like any one section held the key, that these other sections weren't important. I really wanted it to be read as a totality. So I needed a title that wasn't going to suggest too much content. I wanted a title in a certain way that would almost be sort of neutral when you pick up the book. And as you read it, the meaning, the reading of the book would stamp meaning on the title rather than the title stamping meaning onto uh, the content of the book itself, if that makes sense it's a coming-of-age novel. But it would be easy, without the fact that you've insisted to include the word novel on the cover, to take this as a memoir. It's a coming-of-age story, but not least because the, the protagonist, as I've already hinted at, is called Jeff Jackson as well. So why do that? Why did you choose to do that, if you then have to insist that they put a novel on the cover? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, for a couple of reasons. It's funny, it, it was a change that came fairly late in the process. I worked on this book for five years. It went through many drafts and many versions to try and find the right balance of all these different elements. And the book had been very loosely based on these journals that I kept growing up. And they were things that I had carried with me over many years. I hadn't looked at for a long, long time, for, for decades, really. And finding these journals and looking through them was a real, it was a real surprising experience for me. I just didn't really recognize who the person was who had written down a lot of these things. It was hard to remember what were things that had actually happened to me, what were what was sort of town gossip, what were things that had happened to other people. It was all sort of jumbled together in these journals, and it was really startling, and it was sort of the jumping-off point for writing the book. However, when I started writing it, I didn't give the character my name. In fact, I tried to distance myself as much from the character as possible in a lot of ways. And it was sort of over the course of writing the book and revising it again and again, I realized that I had, I had sort of been doing a, a disservice to the book by trying to distance myself. And I realized that the character throughout all these different versions had, in a certain way, earned the right to my name. And by giving the character my name, it gave the book sort of an emotional charge, an emotional honesty that was really important. And it sort of added that extra layer to the book that had been there from the beginning, but I'd, sense, but I'd been sort of denying, that was really important in terms of sort of the idea of telling your own story. You know, that it started with me telling a version of my own story, and now the narrator is trying to tell a version of his own story. Um, and we happen to share the same name, even though uh, we don't always share the same experiences. I'm Lee Rourke. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, to one extent, though, is an autobiographical is, is obviously too strong a word. But to one extent, are your own memories or experiences of childhood, the way that you remember growing up, fed into this book then? And I mean, again, obviously, you know, anybody that has read this book 
well swoon at the very possibility that any of it could be autobiographical because it's it's uh, you know poor narrator Jeff Jackson really goes through the mill. But what sort of minor versions of these stories perhaps were you able to draw on? It sort of depended on the story itself, uh, on the on the pieces of the book themselves. I mean, some of the things that are some of the wilder parts of the book were things I was able to draw on more directly. I mean, for instance, there's a section of the people, uh, of the kids living in the woods, and they talk about this amusement park that's been abandoned and these gibbons who um, who have been let loose and sort of are running through the woods. And in fact, uh, where I grew up in New Jersey part of the time, there was these stories of this uh, amusement park that had been abandoned and and there were stories about the animals roaming the woods. The section where the narrator, where Jeff goes to get his fortune told, there's this sort of dead village uh, in the middle of the woods, this sort of one strip of road that's there and these houses that have since been abandoned and a few people live in them or squatting in them. And that was that was only 30 minutes from where I lived. There was, in fact, this dead village and there was all these stories about people that uh, camped out there and you could see the evidence of that. And it had been there for many years and then the roads had been cut off and had grown over, but there was still this one strip of road there. So, you know, some of the some of the things that happened were definitely taken from, you know, friends, things that happened to friends, things that I knew about from other people. It was a real mix of uh, a real mix of things. Sometimes it would take just a real a small kernel of something that had happened to me and and turn up the volume on it. You know, I tried while writing it to let myself get as lost as I needed to get in the material and sort of invent as much as I needed to invent. And as I was revising, I tried to make sure it had an emotional authenticity, but I never worried about it having any sort of factual authenticity. Some of these places are real to your childhood. The book beautifully evokes place, both when it's set in the forest and when it's set in the city. It's You really feel like you're there. It's really amazingly evokes. But they're also both equally terrifying, equally feral, whether you're in the countryside and it's supposed to be bucolic or whether you're in the city amongst, amongst the derelicts and the homeless people. What sort of research do you do to these places? What places that you, that you talk about in this book were you familiar with? Well, I mean, I was familiar with, I lived, I grew up in Aruba, actually, which is off the island off the coast of Venezuela. And it has a very odd landscape to it. I mean, there are beautiful beaches there, but it has this real sort of bombed out landscape, almost that are remnants of sort of a World War II battlements. And it, uh, it's a very desert-like island. And I think growing up there, it really sort of attuned me to landscape and this almost sort of like hallucinatory quality to landscapes. And seeing sort of being able to pick out what's unusual in a you know in an otherwise normal landscape. You know, I also grew up later on um, in New Jersey, close to New York City in the 80s, when New York was really really rough. Nothing at all like it is now, where going to uh, Avenue D in the East Village was basically an invitation to get shot in the head, not an invitation to go to a you know an upscale whiskey bar like it is now. So I knew people who were living in those uh, in those scenes who were sort of either on the edges of those scenes or directly in those scenes and sort of gleaned a lot from but, you know, one thing I've, you know, in, in talking about the book, I try to skirt around some of the, you know, what exactly is autobiographical or not out of some, I think it's some fear out of, I don't know if you remember those books by J.T. Leroy from a number of years back. 
this book called Sarah and another book called The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. And this writer was uh, presented himself as this 20-year-old, early 20s runaway who's transgendered, who had been through all this sort of, you know, horrific stuff and was really writing. I mean, the books were fiction, but they were definitely sold on the back of J.T. Leroy's experiences and in interviews. J.T. Leroy would talk very much about all these terrible things that had happened to him. And it turned out later that J.T. Leroy was not, in fact, a 20-year-old transgendered boy, but in fact was a 45-year-old woman from Brooklyn who had invented all of this. And, you know, I mean, the works were fiction, but in fact they were being sold on the fact that there was a, somehow an authentic story behind them. And to me, there's a real, there's a problem. One of the reasons it was important to say A Miracle Corps is a novel is that there's a, I think it's wrong to judge fiction based on some sort of authenticity outside of what the words are on the page themselves. Yeah, and I was going to bring this up later on in the interview. We may as well do it now. I mean, there is this in the UK. I mean, I presume it's the same in in the US, but in the UK there was a few years ago a trend for a, a thing that got pejoratively called a misery memoir. And the worse your childhood had been, the more abused you'd been, the bigger a bestseller you had on your hands. And 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 the American example, of course, that's similar to what you're describing, is a, a million little pieces, right, the, of course. the James Frey yes. one, which of course then turned out to be fictional. And I've, I've I've always I presumed that you were you know you were sort of playing with these ideas with this novel, but I've always been intrigued by this idea that people are really upset when they find out it's not about people it's not about the beauty of the writing or what they get out of the story themselves. People are outraged when they find out that something that's been sold to them as true is not true, and I, I find that interesting. Yeah, I mean I can understand it in the James Free case a little bit more, just because I do think you know if you're calling something a memoir, if you're calling something autobiography, you're entering into a different contract with the reader than I think if you're calling something fiction. And, you know, there is something deceitful and, you know, I, I think ethically wrong about what he did. And, you know, there are a number of other people that have written memoirs that turned out to be, you know, grotesquely exaggerated or, or whatnot. I mean, the J.P. Leroy case is, to me, a little bit more slippery because the works were always presented as fiction. And yet it was still people were reading them as if they were memoir and applying the same standards to them as if they were memoir. I mean, I do think it is ethically wrong what that writer did because she was also claiming to speak for different communities, trying claiming to speak for the runaway community, for the HIV positive community, for the transgender community, you know, when she was none of these things. And that's deeply problematic. But it's interesting how the way we read memoirs, I think, has leaked into the way we read fiction. And some of these same standards are some of these same desires have been transplanted into the way, you know, what we expect, what authenticity means in a fictional work. Even a memoir, even something that's that's sold as the true life story of a person whose photograph is on the front cover of that book, be it, you know, a celebrity or somebody who's had a terribly abused childhood or whatever that's still a work where they've sat down they've written it they've selected what's going in it's been edited by somebody else memory is selective you can never really put down the truth on paper unmediated in the way that people want oh yeah i mean it's, yeah as soon as you put it into paper i mean someone was asking me what the biggest difference was between the jeff jackson the narrator of miracle Pura, and myself and i said well the biggest difference is one is made out of words and one is not you know as soon as you put something into words it's a completely it's a completely different form Nabokov um, talked about the easiest way to tell when a memoir is really fraudulent is when it has a lot of dialogue in it, because that's one of the first things you forget, is long conversations. It's really hard to 
to recall those. And it's interesting how many memoirs reproduce those as if, you know, as if they have perfect recall. And maybe some of those people do. But yeah, there is a certain, there's definitely a certain fiction to even, you know, even the most scrupulous memoirs. Digitalist Latums. I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Jeff Jackson, and we're talking about his novel Mirror Corpora. Jeff, we've just been talking about the you know, sort of elusive nature of memory. Childhood itself is something else that makes total recall more difficult. And this novel is written, certainly at the first couple of chapters, are written in a slightly different style, which in some ways evoke childhood. But of course, we're also talking about a dissolute and a traumatised child as well. So I want to talk about that style. Why are those first opening chapters written in that sort of way? Yeah, well, the first chapter is written in such a way, it's called My Year Zero, and it's written in such a way that each moment or memory has, it's it's like one paragraph, it gets its own page. So you get sort of a flash of memory, and then it's sort of, I almost imagine it's cinematically, it's something sort of fading up, and you get this moment, and then it fades down again, and then you turn the page and you get the next one. And for me, that's very much how my memory of really early childhood events is. I remember these sort of vivid, but ultimately sort of disconnected moments, you know, these flashes. There are unfortunately, you know, gaps between them that I could fill in, but they would almost be guesses at this point. So I really wanted to, when the protagonist, when Jeff is at his youngest, around five years old, remembering this sort of very early primal experience where he's taken out with some other kids and some adults, and they're going hunting for stray dogs in the woods. I really wanted this memory to have that feel of, you know, of those earliest memories, that in a certain way, the narrator's almost fighting to recall them. And what he's able to come up with are these disconnected flashes that give you enough that you get the, you know, you definitely get the story, you can follow it, but it's not, it's not continuous either. That was important for me. I mean, I also, throughout writing the book, I tried to, I thought of the tone of the book that I was trying to get was that feeling just as you're waking up, where you're maybe a little bit still dreaming, but the room around you is real. You're aware of reality, but there's still like a little bit of dream logic happening. I think they call it a hypnagogic state. And I was real interested in evoking that because to me, so many memories sort of exist for me, at least in that realm. And it's not outright surreal and dreamlike, but it's not completely realistic either. And it's sort of this slippery in-between state. I like also how it goes even further than that because there'll be sequences of the book that are dreamlike, hallucinogenic, but also the next one will be incredibly vivid and and hyper-real. And that evokes that sort of hypnagogic state, but also the memory thing. But as I mentioned before, it's also a a story about an incredibly traumatised child as well. 
Yeah, I mean, there are, there are parts. I mean, there's one section of the book where the narrator is literally narrating outside of his body. I mean, the point of view in technical terms would be probably hovering like a foot above the body, his own body, while he's trying to describe some of these traumatic things that are happening to him. And I think that's very real for people who go through trauma and that one of the coping mechanisms is to be slightly disconnected. You know, that if you're fully connected, it's too hard. The experiences are too hard to deal with full on, and you have to be partially disconnected in order to do that. And I did, you know, in writing the book, there are moments where that happens. One, because I felt it was authentic to what the character is going through. And it was also a way to not desensitize the readers, because as you talked about, there are all these sort of miserablest memoirs where it's really about sort of rubbing the reader's nose and how awful these situations are. And I didn't, even though there are some awful situations in the book, I really didn't want to desensitize the reader. I really wanted to give the reader enough space that they could navigate these sections and have their own emotional reactions to them and sort of feel some freedom as a reader to process this however they want to process it and not feel that they were being so inundated that they couldn't uh, they just couldn't deal you already mentioned this in the first part of the show but there's this idea that that you know the writing of this misery memoir is supposed to be somehow cathartic for the author there's a framing device in this book which is basically setting out the idea that this is jeff jackson's memoir the fictional character jeff jackson in the book he is setting out at the beginning to say i am going to take these notebooks and i'm going to write out my life story and that sort of crops up throughout the interludes and then briefly again at the end of the memoir section of the book and we'll get to what we'll get to what i mean by that a little later on it begins with a quite literal sacrifice is there some sort of way in which telling your story is a sacrifice to the teller yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think and it starts out with a sort of ritual where the narrator, uh, well, it's a ritual where you sort of draw a door on a piece of paper and tap the paper three times and the door opens and you walk into the page itself. And that's where the sacrifice takes place is within the page itself. And I do think there's when you're drawing on your own childhood in particular, there's an element of sacrifice. There's an element of sacrificing those memories for the sake of writing. I mean, I think it's also the sense of potentially you're paying a high price. Like, is this something that, you know, are you willing to go far enough? Are you willing to actually take part in this sacrifice, this sort of human sacrifice, in order to tell your story? How far are you really willing to go? How important is this to you? So at the end of the last chapter of, as I've described as, as the memoir, but which is chapter six, My Zero Year, when Jeff is 18, it ends with, what I think, if this was, you know, your normal contemporary fiction, you know, the sort of thing, if this was, a, you know, an Oprah's book club type book, would definitely be the final scene, the moment of catharsis, the bit where Jeff puts his past, his childhood behind in a, in a moment of conflagration and gets on with the rest of his life. But this book doesn't end like that, of course. There's then, and it's interesting you were saying, describing um, wanting to give the whole title of the book, Mira Corpora, a vague name so people would not attach any sort of significance to a certain part. But the book ends with a fictional fiction, a short story that the fictional Jeff Jackson has written, which is called Mira Corpora, which comes after the end of the memoir bit. So why? Why did you do that? Yeah, you're right about the title. At that point in the book, I wanted a title for this sort of fiction that the narrator writes. I, w I needed a title that would, uh, would really jump out for the reader. 
and that's why I gave it the title uh, the title of the book here. To me, it was so. If in some ways the book is the process of me taking things from my life and fictionalizing them, turning them into a novel, I wanted to I wanted to dramatize that for the reader in real time. So I wanted to have the character Jeff Jackson at the end of the book basically take his life that you've, you know, you've experienced up until this point and for him to now turn it into a fiction, into a short story. And the story at the end of the book, it involves a lot of the same recognizable characters and recognizable themes and images that you've seen, uh, you've experienced earlier in the book, but they're all, they're scrambled up in a different way. And I, I wanted partially for you to get a sense of how the narrator has sort of gone through this in sort of what he's learned is sort of shown in some ways by how he retells his story, because the way he retells his story is different from what you've read before and the outcome of of it is different from what you've read before. And it seems to me that he doesn't, there's no catharsis. He's written a memoir, got to the end of it, sat there, thought, I should feel better about this now, now that I don't. And then the, the story is almost like a, a sort of further distancing event. He's, you know, he's creating, he's clearly a character in that story, but all of the bad things happen to somebody else, for instance. There's a different victim. Yeah, so I mean, you can read it a number of different ways, I think. I mean, in some ways, he's not, uh, he's not as much a victim, and that's definitely a positive outcome for him. But he also finds himself sort of getting snared in the telling itself, that he sort of, the story loops back on itself and he's he's caught in some uncertainty that he's not sure how to navigate at the very end that instead of writing the story creating a definite outcome definite positive outcome or even a definite negative outcome it's sort of created more uncertainty in a certain way i mean i hope that i guess the, i mean the the way i sort of picture that last section is in some ways sort of orbiting around the rest of the book and i hope that in some ways it creates a sense of summation for the reader and a sense of completion for the reader. And I hope that at the same time, it's also sort of rewriting and undoing some of what's happened during the rest of the book. Tom McCarthy has this great quote about saying that what literature should be doing is creating a zone of static where everything and nothing is said at the same time. And I've always loved that. And that idea, you know, it's hard to try and do both, to say something that feels like it's a large encapsulation and at the same time, it's an unraveling. The story, the short story at the end of the book, it features a, you know, a quite savage piece of violence against against an adult that in this case I think is genuinely trying to help the younger character that I think represents Jeff. And all the way through the story, Jeff, this is the story of him running, you mentioned at the very beginning that it's a, he's searching for a home. He's basically running from an abusive relationship with his alcoholic mother. And all the way through the different stages, he stumbles from one unsuitable authority figure to another. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really from one sort of unsuitable home to the next. He keeps trying to find a home, and I think in some ways it's finding the problem is that he's trying to find a home on other people's terms. I mean, part of that is just being young. I mean, you don't, when you're young and you're trying to find, you're trying to make your own world, you're necessarily under so many other people that you don't have that much agency. It's hard to sort of make your, sort of, it's hard to make your own world. Other people are constantly making your world for you. And I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the things about being young and one of the frustrations about being young. So part of it is just the narrator's young and he's sort of moving from unsuitable home to unsuitable home. And finally, at the end of the book, he's offered his mother's dead and he's offered an opportunity to have a home and her will, but it comes to these emotional strings that are attached. 
And it's sort of the question is whether or not he's going to accept that. You know, about the person who's had violent, who uh, has violence done to him in the, in the short story, I mean, I think it's also, it's interesting because people have different reads on whether or not that person deserved it. Like, is that person being predatory or not? And I think that the book is sort of, there's enough charged material you've read before that that you can, you can potentially see it either way because you can understand, like, is the narrator being paranoid or is the narrator, like, maybe he wasn't paranoid enough in the past and maybe, you know, this is right, he should be, but this is not unjustified uh, worry of his. Yeah, I mean, that was my take on it, that some of the experiences that he's had in the book, we're going to move on to talk about particularly one of those in a moment, perhaps. But yeah, it seemed to me that the person was, I took it that way, that that person was sort of reaching out and helping and he was unable to react kindly to that. It was, you know, he'd been sort of damaged enough by people that had not been kind to him in the past. And and I'm saying he's had a rough time, but there were moments of camaraderie and tenderness all throughout the book. You know, he with Lydia, who is one of the children in the forest. Ruth, who is a you know a, a pregnant homeless woman who takes him under her wing. There's various different gangs. The gangs of kids in the forest and the, the gang of kids who are looking for, for the rock star are all like groups of sort of self-supporting friends. But I think most interestingly, there's genuine tenderness with Gert Jan, the guy who, who basically, if we ignore the fact that he... Um, he drugs him, kidnaps him, and turns him into a sex slave. <laughs> Minor details, right, yeah. Then there's genuine sort of tenderness in that relationship, which I think is brilliantly and unsettlingly evoked, I think. Thanks. It was really important to me that there was a lot of beauty and tenderness throughout the book, because I think even in the most horrific situations that I've been through and people I know have been through, there's still these moments of connection and these moments of beauty that, you know, that are woven throughout these experiences. And that was important to me. I mean, the, even though there's a section where they sort of set in the woods with this gang of kids. A lot of people, when I tell them that, they initially say, oh, it's just like Lord of the Flies. But it was really important for me that it not be like Lord of the Flies, that it not automatically just sort of devolve into chaos and bloodshed. You know, I wanted there to be a little bit more of a sense of camaraderie and a sense of uh, at least intermittent tenderness. And with the character of Gert Jan, who's definitely... If there's a villain in the book, he's certainly the villain in the book and a really despicable person in a lot of ways. But there is, there's a tenderness that he shows the narrator. There's a tenderness that he shows Jeff. There's a certain sense that in a way he really understands Jeff. He understands his psychology and in some like really awful way is meeting some of his needs. It's the most like a home that he gets in the entire, in the entire narrative, really, isn't it? that section. Yeah, I mean, when he first, you know, after the first encounter with him, what Gertrude says is, "You'll never, you know, I can tell how sad you are. You'll never feel any more pain again," which I think is something that that Jeff is looking for, that the narrator is looking for there. But you know, it comes at a quite a high price of not feeling any more pain. Also, means you're going to be completely disconnected from your body, and you know, and barely alive. Um, you know, you're going to really be unplugged from yourself in this really uh, dire way. You know, and I think also psychologically there is, you know, people have these ties to their abusers. And, you know, it's something that people don't like to talk about a lot. But there is, you know, there is a psychological tie, however toxic, however awful, however much it needs to be severed, you know, that often exists in these relationships. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to try and be as honest as possible in relating those things. I'm Rachel Cook, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
Another way in which people can form groups and belong is through music and fandom. And we've talked about Kin Mersey, the um, the sort of desolate former rock star that these kids become obsessed with and try to track down. But of course, he turns out to be, you know, yet another another false idol. So let's talk about that, you know, that idea of, you know, latching on to you know, subcultures and groups and putting these guys up on a pedestal, really. Well, I mean, music has always been super important to me. And even beyond uh, um, the theatre piece I wrote about music and rock and roll, um, I've written a lot of music criticism over the years, music reviews and some interviews and profiles. And it's always been, music for me has always been a huge life raft, whether it's been punk rock or jazz, whatever type of music. I mean, I like a lot of different types of music. But, you know, especially when I was young, there was something about, something tribal about liking certain types of music and being able to almost identify your people by the fact that if, you know, if they could understand a certain type of band, if someone could really get, I don't know, Throbbing Gristle or Slater Kinney, you know, that they must be your type of person, that you could trust them to a certain degree. It's almost a sort of a shorthand of forming friendships, uh, at least for me when I was young. Any sort of figure, the closer you get to them, often... Uh, the more you romanticize them, the more you're set up to be disappointed that in some ways the work they're creating that you love is almost in some ways separate from them or what you love about it may be separate from them, that the work has a certain life of its own that's separate from its creator. And when you tie those two things together, I mean, there's some people where that's true, like their, their life and work are interrelated, but I found that there are certain other artists where it's almost they're just sort of a conduit for their work. And they're sometimes as you know, confused about it as other people or, or seem to have little relationship to it. I mean, I loved watching the Scott Walker documentary, you know, and he's this guy from the Midwest who's talking very down to earth and he's wearing a baseball cap and doesn't seem like he'd be creating these totally fearsome atonal songs. You know, he seems like a regular guy who talks about at one point like not wanting to seem too pretentious, where at the same time he's hiring people to come in and uh, miking pieces of meat and having people hit them for sound effects, you know? I mean, I think with the Ken Mersey character too, there's also a question of they see him at the end of that chapter perform some music. And they're very disappointed, the narrator in particular, in what he hears from that music. I think there's a question of, is this really, is this just sort of a uh, travesty of what Kin has created in the past? Or has he in maybe in some way broken through to something new that's just so terrifying that the narrator's not willing to deal with it and not willing to hear it for what it is? And I think that's something that also happens when you become so attached to certain musicians or artists. You want them to keep doing that same thing again and again. And if they break away from that, it, it can feel like a real personal betrayal. Now, it's interesting you illustrated that point with Scott Walker, who has uh, taken that exact trajectory. I mean, I was going to suggest that perhaps Kin's pursuit of his art had sent him crazy, basically, had sent him to that place. It was something that was always unattainable, that artistic perfection. And of course, Jeff, the character Jeff is in, is in the, the midst of writing art. Art appears a lot of times through this book, whether it's just portraits. It's a fantastic scene with a, you know, with a really grim portrait in the uh, forest. And finally to that, you know, your website is called Death of Literature, right? We're talking about a novel that you've written here. Can we not put our trust in art? Will art always let us down as well, do you think? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, one thing about the website is it's really hard to find even a jeffjackson.edu to uh, to make your own website. There are too many people out there sharing my name, it seems. I think there are certain types of art you can put your faith in. I mean, there's a lot of talk about how literature is dying out. And I do think there's a certain type of middle-brow novel that is dying out. 
that is losing its currency, and for good reason, because why should people spend their time reading something that basically holds your hand and walks you through the book, um, and it's basically a very passive experience, and it's almost similar to watching a TV show. And frankly, I think there are many TV shows out there today that are doing a better job of entertaining storytelling than a lot of middle-brow novels. And I think that, I think publishing is in big trouble if it keeps sort of following the same trajectory. I think it's important, for me, it's important as a reader that a book give me an experience that only a book can give me. And that may mean a book that's full of story or full of character or has a voice or maybe something that's much more abstract. But whatever it is, I want to feel like it's not just sort of a, uh, you know, some words that are waiting to be turned into a screenplay that they're actual, they're actual words on a page that are interacting with my mind and doing something to my mind and lighting up my imagination in a way that only a book can do. And I think it's interesting because I think that the real literature throughout the ages has always been sort of grappling with its own death and realizing that. I mean, Don Quixote, right from the get-go, is worrying about, the first novel is worrying about whether or not, you know, this is a valid art form, can it survive? And I think that that sort of worry is built into some of the best books, that sense of can you really get across what you want to get across? I may be contradicting myself. We're looping around a little here, but I mean, there, there is a certain, in middle brown novels, there's a certainty that what needs to be said can be said. I feel like in the best literature, there's a sense of uncertainty about whether or not what needs to be said can be said, but an attempt regardless to do that. The cover of this book, the cover of my copy of Mirror Corpora, has a, has a quote from the author Lee Rourke on it, who was on Little Atoms uh, just a few weeks ago, talking about his novel, Vulgar Things. And and we talked about this same thing, you know, the idea of the, the death of the novel at the end of that interview. And I think both yourself and Lee are sort of part of that same modernist project. And the contemporary novel, Jeff, is in is in a, a terminal condition. Why write a novel? Are you? Is there a chance of resuscitating that corpse? or are we basically just fiddling around in the ruins? No, I mean, I do think, actually, I do think there is a chance. I do think it's still valuable. I think, I mean, for me, there is a, I mean, I love music and I love film, but there's an immediacy to reading a book. I mean, it just, it slots, there's an unmediated way it slots right into your consciousness that I feel like can have, when it's done right, can have a bigger impact than just about any other art form. A lot of modern writers don't take advantage of that, but I feel like that that is something incredibly powerful that can still be harnessed, that can still be really impactful for people. I mean, one of the things uh, about my own project is I'm interested in trying to write something that is part of the modernist project that is sort of drawing deeply on a lot of the literature that's come before, but that also has a real sort of charge of adventure about it. That there is, I mean, it's really important for me that there's a plot engine to the book, that you have a reason to keep turning the pages. For me, like writing sort of a modernist book isn't an either-or proposition. It doesn't mean that if you write a modernist book, you can write a modernist book or you can write a page-turner. It's like, no, I want to write a modernist book and I want to write a page-turner. I want to write something that has, that gives you a charge, a visceral charge of excitement and gives you some visceral charges of emotion, but do that in a way that isn't cheap and sentimental, that is 
still complicated and drawing on a lot of networks of modernist literature in the way that it's put together. I've been talking to Jeff Jackson, and we've been talking about his novel, Myra Corpora, or I should say, I'm going to say the full title again, which is Jeff Jackson's Myra Corpora, a novel. Jeff, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.